<laughs> Good morning, Oaks Church. That's my first time seeing that uh, animation to you, so I was a little distracted for a second. Um, no, that was really good. Um, my name is uh, Connor Roldan, and I'm one of the elders here. And uh, per that video, this week marks the start of a new sermon series. We're spending a few weeks this summer just going through the Psalms. The Psalms are a book that has been used by the church since the beginning of, since the beginning of the church as a source of refreshment and nourishment, as it talks about basically all aspects of life, right? You get, you get the full range of emotion, you get the full range of, of everything that the psalmist is going through. You'll get to hear some, uh, you'll get to hear and see some familiar faces and potentially some uh, unfamiliar faces take you through a psalm of their choice. It's going to be really helpful to hear what they have to say. I'm, I'm really excited for it as we, as we get into it, this, uh, get into this summer series. But speaking of unfamiliar faces, I found myself at a wedding a few weeks ago where I didn't recognize a single face at first glance. Now, that might not be so uncommon. I'm sure some of, you, some of you have gone to weddings where the only person you knew was the groom or the bride, and you just had to make new friends at the table you were placed at. But this is a little different. This was the wedding of one of my best friends growing up. And at this wedding, I was surrounded by people who I had also grown up with, gone to school with, played sports with, gone to church with. These were the people that left a permanent mark upon me and my childhood. And I was squinting to even get an idea of who they were as I was passing by, as I was seeing them in the crowd. Needless to say, I was a little embarrassed, was a little annoyed, and even fearful at my inability to recognize them immediately. Like I said, these are, these are people that I, I knew pretty well. <laughs> these are people that I, were, I was friends with growing up. I would consider them friends. And I didn't want to, and it was strange, because I didn't want to dive into a conversation with someone with the chance of not figuring out who they were or, or remembering their name by the end of it. For most of my former friends from that time, uh, from Columbus, uh, it had, for most of my former friends at the time, it had been such a, such a long time since I'd last seen them they were, they were almost a completely different person. I had to come to terms with the fact that they had been through so much without me that I didn't really know them anymore, especially in the way that I used to know them. And I imagine that's somewhat how the disciples felt when seeing Jesus for the first time after his resurrection. Sure, he looked different after the resurrection, but it's not what the Gospels are trying to get across when they tell you his disciples to not recognize him immediately. And it's really not because Jesus changed in any way, right? Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it's really because his disciples were forced to come to terms with how little they actually knew this man. They were the ones who were being changed and being drawn deeper into relationship with Christ. They were meeting him for the first time as their Lord and their God. Up to that point, their ideas of who Christ was and what he was meant to do reigned in their heads and their heart, their ideas, not Christ's ideas, not, not the Lord's knowledge of himself. And after the resurrection, Jesus shattered those false ideas and showed them who he really is. He's the one who, who gave his life for his people and conquered his enemies through love, not the sword. I say all that for a somewhat long introduction, 
to make the point that something similar happens to us when we read any passage of Scripture in humility, ready to actually read and engage with the text and be corrected by it. Truly, any passage that we come to. And this is not easy, though. This is, this is hard work. This can be extremely hard and discouraging when you come to a passage of Scripture that makes absolutely, no, that makes absolutely zero sense. And even more so, when you read a passage you think makes sense, you think you understand the meaning of, but seemingly contradicts other passages of Scripture, in particular, the commands of Jesus, right? This seems to be true of Psalm 129. That's the psalm we're going to be looking at today. That's the psalm we're going to be starting off this, this series with. When we read any psalm, and really, and more broadly, Psalm 129 and more broadly, when we read any psalm where the writer is heaping curse upon curse on their enemies, the most famous one might be where the psalmist blesses anyone who would dash his enemy's children's children against the rocks, right? And I'm just asking you, be honest with yourself here. What do you do with passages like these? How do you hold up these passages while holding up the passages of Christ, praying for his enemies while he was suffering on the cross? When you run into one of these psalms, are you a little embarrassed by them? Maybe you're a little afraid of them. If you're anything like me, you'll just ignore this passage and what it is saying and move on. Just, just, for, uh, just completely get it out of your mind and just keep on going. Maybe, maybe read a gospel or two uh, in between the next psalm. Never really engaging it, never really engaging with it or taking it seriously. And as a result, never really being open to meeting God and what he is saying in the text never really being changed because of that. These are our scriptures. These are the scriptures that the Lord has given us. Every word of them is good. It's pure. It's been refined seven times by fire. Oh, church, these are not light questions. And they're not easy ones to answer by any means. My hope by the end of today is not that all your confusion embarrassment and fear of these passages would go, would go completely away, but you would see that God is greater than any obstacle within the world, and especially within yourself, that might be keeping you from knowing him, loving him, and living fully into the life he has for you and for those around you. This psalm and others like it were given to us for our good, like I said. But before we, before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord together and ask him to show us the, that truth. Pray with me. Father, we just thank you for this day, Lord, that you have made. Thank you that you only do good and you only give good gifts to us. Help us to recognize our weakness, Lord. Help us to recognize our inability, uh, our, uh, our lack of strength, our lack of knowledge and love to, to, uh, to, to see these scriptures and to see you in them. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us who you are and what you would have for us in, in, psalm, in this psalm and, uh, and other psalms like it and other passages like it, which we may just not know what to do with when we immediately run into them. Father, I pray that you would be our wisdom this morning. I pray that we would come to you in humility. I pray that you would humble me through this me and, and everyone here through this, God. For that anything that is not of you would fall on deaf ears, but 
that you would fill us with your spirit and lead us out of here in a, in a better, uh, better knowledge and love of you. Through Christ I pray. Amen. So let's go ahead and jump right into the text. Flip with me to Psalm 129. This is a shorter psalm. It's only about, it's only eight verses or so. So I'm going to read it in full, and then we'll break it down section by section. So Psalm 129, 1 through 8 says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made their furrows. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetop, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. It's the, the word of the Lord. So as we look at this psalm, let's break it down and look at, the, look at verses 1 through 4 together. I'll just repeat them real quick. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed along my, upon my back. They made long their furrows. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The first thing the psalmist wants you to see is that ever since Israel's youth from Egypt, right, where he's called his son, in Hosea, uh, we, we see that, uh, uh, that he calls uh, his son out of e- that the Lord calls his son out of Egypt, referring to Israel. That being said, it's from Egypt. The, Lord, the Lord's people have been persecuted, but God has the final word, and he will carry out judgment upon those who are doing, doing the persecuting. The scriptures make it clear that from the time the Lord called the Israelites out of Egypt, and really even before that time, his people have been beaten, oppressed, and attacked by the powers of the world. This may seem obvious, but the first example of this we can look at is in the book of Exodus with the Israelites in Egypt. They were made into slaves of the Egyptians, forced to serve and make bricks by cruel taskmasters who wouldn't hesitate to punish if their every demand was not met. And that's really the least of it, right? We read in Exodus 1 that Pharaoh commanded every son born to the Hebrews was to be cast in the Nile. This is horrific. This is, this is genocide, right? When the scriptures speak of affliction, they mean it. And you can be sure that they mean it. This affliction is also clear in the captivity of the Israelites by Babylon, where their home and temple was destroyed, and the people exiled and taken far away from the promised land that had been given to them by the Lord. In both of these instances, though we see that those powers of the world do not, in both of those instances, though, we see that those powers of the world do not have the final word. God does. He is the righteous judge who has cut the cords of the wicked. No matter how long and deep the wounds are, the Lord saves his people through judgment. 
through judgment of those, those evil and wicked nations, right? It's important to see from the psalm that the Lord already has cut the cords of the wicked. He has cut the cords. This is true when he raised up Moses and Aaron in Egypt, Daniel, Nehemiah, and Ezra in Babylon and Persia. And it's true today as a way for Christ's return. Our hope is never in what we experience day to day. We live in a broken and corrupt world where our loved ones die, where we experience unbelievable pain. No, it's not in this world. It's in the righteous character of our our God who sees everything that goes on and has promised to make everything right. In that sense, it's very much this life, and in the scriptures, right, we, it's very much like a movie or a book or a TV show that you've seen and already know the ending of. To know what's going to happen doesn't take away from the enjoyment or realness of what's going on. It actually lets you enjoy it more and in a deeper way. You're able to see the choices made by characters early on in the movie or show or book lead to where they end up without any anxiety or worry about what might, hap- might or might not happen you were able to better see and appreciate the littlest of things the writers and directors have put into it while not missing out on the big picture. And you don't just have that, but you have the director and writer giving you insider information, right? This is like uh, getting the director's cut. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have the director right in our ear. He's closer, he's, he's, he's actually in us, right? He's moving, he's moving your eyes and opening your ears to what you should be looking at and listening to. And verse 5 really is that insider information, which gives us an even clearer idea of what this righteous judgment will look like. It says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. To put it simply, the psalmist is telling you God ultimately turns the plans of the wicked against themselves. They're shown that they are in the wrong and put to shame by it. And everything that was planned by them is reversed and brought upon their own heads. The psalmists speak of this again and again. Psalm 57, 6 says, They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. But they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. But where this played out the clearest, in my opinion, is in the book of Esther. In Esther, one of the things that you see is the one of the things you see in Esther is the evil plot of a man named Haman, the right-hand man of the king of Persia. And his plan, it's his plot to put a man named Mordecai, a Jew in exile in Persia, to death. And we really see how that how that, that plays out, how that works out for, for both Haman and Mordecai. And it's not just Haman, it's not just that. Haman's plans were foiled, right? But that everything about them was reversed. The honor and respect that Haman wanted from the king was given to Mordecai through Haman as he was commanded to lead Mordecai through the city while proclaiming praises of him. All the while, the shame and death that was planned, that was planned by Haman, was brought, about, uh, was brought upon the head of the one who planned it. 
the very instrument of death that Haman had built overnight to use against Mordecai, was used against him instead as he was put to death by the king. Now, I don't mean to make light of this, this text in any way. This is, this is a serious, this is a, uh, a serious text, a serious psalm, right? That being said, I couldn't help but think of, uh, I couldn't help but think of Looney Tunes when I was trying to think of other examples of this just in everyday life. I watched a good amount of Looney Tunes when I was a kid, but specifically, I couldn't stop thinking about how you see this time and time again with Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner, right? Wiley Coyote was constantly coming up with plans to try to catch Roadrunner and would consistently fail. And he wouldn't just fail, all of his plans were turned backwards. He was almost always the victims of his own trap. And similar to Haman, by the time he was able to realize his foolishness in the plan, it was too late. He was fully committed and he suffered the consequences. This is what the Lord does when he turns, uh, turns the plans of the wicked backward. He turns them backward onto themselves. But again, go, keep, keeping on going through the psalm, looking at the, the last three verses, we're given a director's cut, another director's cut, into what those consequences look like in these, in these last verses. So verses 6 through 8 say, Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You see here, finally, that everything the wicked try to accomplish, and even seemingly accomplish, disappears like smoke. Those who put their hope and faith in the world will always be disappointed. They will never experience the blessing of the Lord. They will never produce any good things from their lives and will always wither and ultimately die. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us an idea of what this kind of life is like. It's like smoke that disappears in a second. It's vanity that isn't able to recognize itself in the mirror. In a lot of ways, it's like a firework, right? Which appears for a second, makes a loud noise, and then disappears, never to be seen again. Good for nothing except to destroy itself. So, going through, the, going through the entire psalm, is this really the way that we are to understand this and others like it, though? Is that the final word? Is that the, is that the only interpretation of this psalm as a death sentence to those who, are, who we believe are wicked while we are covered by the grace of God? I don't know about you, but I, uh, I may be just exposing myself. I, I, I don't put myself in the place of the wicked when I read this psalm. Uh, maybe in my best days, I do. But a lot of the times, I, I tend to think of my enemies, right? Those who, those who would uh, want, to, uh, want to see me fail, want to see me stumble. And that being said, I don't think that's the, that's the final way that we understand this psalm. To understand it solely in that way, it's to cast burdens on people the same way the Pharisees did in Christ's time. Right? 
To only see it in that light is to ignore the cross and the good news which the gospel presents to everyone who will listen. Not just you, not, uh, not just you, not just me, or those we like or consider friends. So let's just take a look at these passages again. I hope you see how the righteous judgment of God is only possible and upheld by his love and mercy. This time through, we're not going to go in order. We're going to start with verse 5. And or, I believe verse 5 is really the crux of this, this psalm, right? And we're going to start there to, uh, in order to understand how you should read the rest of it. So verse 5 says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. The first time through this verse, you saw how God turns the plans of the wicked on their own head. And while that is true, God is also the one who turns those plans, he turns those plans by taking the consequences of them onto himself. And in doing so, we are able to recognize the shamefulness of our actions and be turned backwards unto him. To be clear, this is the furthest thing from a psalm of condemnation. And I believe this is true of all the imprecatory psalms, all of the cursing psalms. It's, this psalm is simultaneously a grave warning, a very serious and grave warning, but a psalm of even greater hope. Christ is the one who willingly turns towards the cross and sets his face like flint to suffer it in order to restore you in his image, not condemn you. Every one of you here was created by, was created by God, and because you were created by God, you were created good. It is sin that has marred the, that goodness in you. Sin that has been thrusted upon you by others and broken you, but also, and even more so maybe, sin that you have given into. Sin that you have let reign in your body and thrusted upon others. And it's not something that you can will your way out of. You're not strong enough to just stop sinning. You are dead in it. And how can a dead person hope to repent and turn backwards from his wicked ways? They can't. You can't. You need Jesus to turn and therefore turn you. And the good news is that he has. God completely understands your situation. He completely, he completely knows your pain and brokenness and has worked salvation for you. The cross is for everyone, right? You can never be too far gone in your, own foolish, in your own foolish scheme in this life. And saying that it's, it's, it's for us, it's for those around us, it's for our enemies. We shouldn't be hesitant to share the gospel with somebody because we think that they are too far gone. We, do not make the, we don't make that call. The Lord is inviting you today to know him and obey his commandments. Not for his love, but out of his love. He is the one who calls those who labor and are heavy laden, for he is the one who gives rest. He is gentle and lowly in heart, and you need to learn from him. And in that learning, one of the first things this means for you is you need to examine yourself. And ask where your life is not, and ask where your life is not lining up with Christ. Are you the one condemning sins and those you don't like, while coddling the ones within yourself that you deem acceptable? It's all too easy for pride in, for pride in who you are and in the work you do to sneak in undetected and rot you from the core. 
or for envy and discontentment for the lives of others and the life you have been given to shade everything you think and do. It's easy to recognize sins in others and condemn them. You don't need Jesus for that. You need Jesus to recognize the wickedness of your own soul and also to truly recognize sins in others so that you may help them conquer those sins through kindness. The same way that he is and will conquer sins in you. So look to him and know he is with you. He's with you not only, uh, not only in your best times, he's with you in your worst times. And verses 1 through 4 show that as well. Again, we'll, we'll just, again we're just going to go through this psalm again. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ will wipe away every tear, every single one that you shed, and every single one that you caused. It's not just those outside of God's people who are the afflictors. As we looked at, as we looked at when we first went through uh, this, the first four verses. It was also those within God's people who did the afflicting. This is clear with the Israelites in the wilderness who were constantly grumbling and rebelling against God. Yet God never abandons them. His love is set upon them and he is faithful and true. And ultimately, he's the one who gives his back to be plowed upon. He is the one who takes the fullness of the curse and overcomes it while fully recognizing the reality of the pain and suffering that you have gone through and given out to others. The last thing that he does is discount it. He redeems you through it. Don't hear me wrong. He does not just cast aside your burdens. He does not just... He's not just cast aside what you have gone through, but he sees it. He knows it. He knows it personally. He knows it better than even you do, if you can believe it. And therefore, don't be afraid to cry out to God. Don't be afraid to be honest with him and tell him what you are truly experiencing, thinking, and feeling. You don't have to lie or put up false pretenses in your prayers. He loves you enough to meet you where you're at where you're truly at. Again, I can't emphasize this enough, right? You need to be honest with the Lord. If you can't be honest with the Lord, how can you expect to be honest with anybody else? How can you expect the Lord to truly know you? How do you expect to be truly known and know the Lord if you won't give, if you won't give yourself to him, if you won't be honest even with yourself? Like I said, I'm going to repeat this again. He loves you enough to meet you where, you at, where you're at. He's already met you. He's here. He has come, right, in Jesus. He didn't come for the best people. He didn't come for those who were putting on a front. He didn't come for the, those who were following all the rules, following even the commands of the law, right? And the law is a good thing. But he's come for those who were astray, who, were, who, had, uh, who had gone out from the, from the flock to bring them back in, to make them 
to make them uh, one with the Father as he is one with the Father. It's by him that we are saved. It's by him that we are brought up into holiness. And that being said, he, he meets you where you're at, but he loves you too much to let you stay there. He will bring you out of the depths and give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Trust him. Trust him with everything. Finally, verses 6 through 8 show us he won't merely bring you up from the depths, but he will bring the very depths up with you. The psalmist says, Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Christ is the one who took these curses upon himself. He's the one who became a curse for us and died so that we might experience, we might experience blessing. So we may never experience cursing, right? So we, may, we might only ever hear the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So we might grow up into him and never wither. So that we may work and always fill our hands with the good things. To quote, uh, to quote Tolkien, he will make everything sad become untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Heaven is not just sitting in the clouds playing harps. We will continue to work in the new heavens and new earth, for we will rightly recognize how little we know of Christ and how, how much more there is to learn. That is, that's our hope, right? Our hope is that he, he invites us to participate in that work, in that redeeming work of not just, not just us, but those around us, the, the whole world, the whole universe, really. And he shows us that even our unfamiliarity, our inability to fully recognize Christ, our lack of understanding and knowledge and love, the things that we, the very things that we need and lack, those are a good thing. Those are good things for, for it is and will be filled by God for eternity, starting now. He is the one who will fill us. He is the one who will continually, uh, continually sustain us and bring us to himself more and more. Every new, uh, like, uh, like the verse that Caden, uh, in Lamentations that Caden read, said, every, every morning there will be a new mercy and there will be new things of the Lord that we will learn and love. So we look through this passage twice and we can't just pick one or the other. Right? It would, be, it would be way too easy to say that this one, the first, the first time going through it is wrong, second time going through it is right. That would be to neglect what, what the psalmist is saying. That would mean to neglect what Christ is saying. We need to hold both of these truths together. That the coming and perseverance of the love of the Lord will bring final judgment for those who ultimately identify with their sin and reject Christ. And also... Salvation for those who are redeemed by him and know him. This is a psalm with a great warning and an even greater hope. And that's only possible because of who, who the God is that we serve. 
He's the one who holds all things within himself. He brings all seeming contradictions into himself and settles them for, uh, for our good. This psalm and others like it are blessings in our lives. These are psalms that we need to be excited about when we read. And if we're not, that's totally fine. Tell the Lord. Tell the Lord that. Complain to the Lord and tell him that we need his understanding. We need his wisdom. We need, because we need to see the Lord for who he actually is and not just who we think he is, not just who we want him to be. We need him to correct us. We need him to give, him wis- to give us wisdom. We need to be able to pray through these psalms with the rest of the church, with Christ, and be at peace. And because anything less than that will cause worry, anxiety, and keep us from a peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's pray.